Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn Dewar and this is The Final Battle in Spain and the Mysterious Death of Frank Ryan, Partisans Part 9. Partisans, which has chronicled the story of Irish experiences in the Spanish Civil War, is created by myself and Stuart Redden. Now this episode looks at the final stages of the war and what happened to the Irish anti-fascist leader, Frank Ryan. If you've not encountered the story of Ryan's final years, It's one of the great mysteries of 20th century Irish history and bound up in the story of the Spanish Civil War. So that's all ahead of us. If you're enjoying Partisans, don't forget to check out the online shop at irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop. There's lots of new items there, including memorabilia associated with the Spanish Civil War, including flags and a few unusual badges. That's all available now at irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop. Now, the next episode is the final show in the series Partisans, and after that, I have some great content coming up. These include a few individual episodes on a variety of topics. One looks at what it was like to live on a pre-famine diet, and I'll actually be doing that for a day, and recording what it's like, along with lots of info about what people ate in the early 19th century. It's going to be a lot of fun. Then there's a show on the life of Irish soldiers in the British Army in the 19th century, and also an episode with Care Women's History Group on the lives of a series of women from South Tipperary in the early 20th century. I'm also working on a mini-series that will be out in the late summer. I haven't figured out how to explain it without a spoiler yet, but I'll say I'm probably more excited about this than anything I've made so far. I think it's going to be really cool. Anyway, if you want to get all this content and you haven't subscribed to the show yet, just pause the episode now and subscribe so you don't miss out. If you have subscribed... Maybe share this episode on your socials. It really helps get the word out. Now to Spain and the final battle. Two winters had come and gone since the start of the Spanish Civil War. And by July 1938, the anti-fascist prospects of victory were diminishing with each passing day. Yet still, even through the previous months, in what seemed to be the twilight of anti-fascist Spain, Volunteers from Ireland and across the world continued to arrive to fight for this cause. 
What made these volunteers somewhat remarkable is that unlike the optimism of 1936 and even early 1937, these people were under no illusion as to the difficulties facing the anti-fascist side. Michael O'Riordan, an Irish Republican from Cork City, aged only 21 at the time, arrived in Spain in early 1938. Now later his son Manus, a historian of the conflict, recounted how his father was fully aware of the dire situation he faced. He was due to go in 1937, but he got appendicitis, so he went the following year. But before he went, he actually said, I already knew the war was lost, because of the amount of aid that Hitler and Mussolini were giving Franco, and the lack of support for the Republic from Britain and France. But he still felt honour-bound, having volunteered to go. So he went out without any expectation of the war being won by any action he took. Michael O'Riordan's bleak view of the war was a sobering but accurate assessment of the conflict he was walking into. While there were countless acts of remarkable bravery and self-sacrifice, the anti-fascists had only scored one decisive victory in the entire war. This had been the Battle of Guadalajara outside Madrid in the early months of 1937, and since then they had suffered defeat after defeat. They had lost the war in the north in the summer of 37. This had been followed by the catastrophe that had been the siege of Teruel at Christmas, and then the collapse of the Aragon Front in early 1938. Barcelona had been cut off from Madrid as the fascists had broken through to the Mediterranean coast. Even more disillusioning, when Michael O'Riordan arrived in Spain in early 1938, he found the Irish volunteers already there, like the wider international brigades, were no longer the fighting force they had once been. The losses and severe discipline were taking its toll. The high casualty rates could not be replaced, and the psychological impact of the war was also difficult. Each step along the way, the Irish volunteers had lost friends and comrades. The bodies of some never recovered, while others were buried in hastily dug graves. Then there was also those who had been captured and disappeared into the bloated fascist prison system. These included their leader, the well-known Republican Socialist Frank Ryan, who had been captured along with Bob Doyle on the Aragon Front in the spring of 1938. Many feared for Ryan's life, concerns that were well-founded. At his court-martial in June 1938, he was sentenced to death. However, there was still a ray of hope. Michael O'Riordan's new defeat was not just a foregone conclusion. His son Manus again recalled the possibilities that lay ahead of him in Spain. He thought perhaps the Republic could hold out a little bit longer and there might be some change if something dramatic happened somewhere else in Europe. While it might sound vague, a faint, even desperate hope, in 1938 this was very possible. In that summer, it was increasingly apparent the Spanish Civil War would not be decided on battlefields in Spain alone. International developments could be as, if not more, important. As we saw in the last episode, Hitler's increasingly aggressive policy in Central Europe was pushing Europe to the brink of war, and this was already having major implications in Spain. The French were deeply alarmed about German expansionism, and after Hitler annexed Austria in March 1938, they needed to react. However, rather than challenge the German dictator head-on, they used Hitler's ally Franco in Spain to send a rather not-so-blunt warning. The French ended their arms embargo on Spain, opened their border to the anti-fascist zone and within a matter of months nearly 20,000 tonnes of military equipment had flooded into Barcelona. While the French would close the border again in the summer of 1938, this offered hope to the anti-fascists. While they had received much-needed supplies into Barcelona, which was cut off from Madrid, 
it also was a sign that events elsewhere, like Michael O'Reardon had anticipated, could have a major impact and potentially even change the course of the war. If a full-scale conflict broke out between France and Germany, there were huge potential advantages for the anti-fascists. Hitler would possibly have to recall the Nazi Condor Legion, which was so important to Franco's successes. Meanwhile, the French would surely, at the very least, supply the anti-fascists with weapons to keep Franco tied down and guarantee he would not help Hitler in such a war. There was one key question that remained, however. While it was obvious a Second World War was coming, a war that could transform the Spanish conflict, it remained unclear if the Spanish anti-fascists could hang on long enough. At the current rate of the fascist advance, the war would end at some point in 1939 with an anti-fascist defeat. This left the anti-fascists with very tough decisions to make. Franco's armies were closing in on the port of Valencia and if this important city were to fall, it would send a message to the world that they were beaten. However, committing to battle obviously carried its own risks. Ultimately, as we saw at the end of the last episode, they committed to a major offensive on the banks of the river Ebro. If successful, it would relieve the threat to Valencia, re-establish communications between Barcelona and Madrid, and crucially, prove to the wider world that anti-fascist Spain was very much still in the war. Therefore, in June 1938, major preparations for this offensive began. Even fascist frontline units began to notice a huge build-up of troops on the east bank of the Ebro. However, while this intelligence was passed back through the line, Franco paid it little heed. This gave the anti-fascists a certain degree of surprise, but they would need it. The attack began on July the 25th, 1938, as anti-fascist commandos crossed the River Ebro clandestinely to kill the sentries on guard. This paved the way for a much larger force, and things went relatively successfully, given the element of surprise, and the anti-fascists managed to take the far bank of the river and establish a bridgehead. Large amounts of men and material poured across the river now, and the battle commenced. As was to be expected by this point, the slaughter that followed was horrific, as the fascists counterattacked. The Nazi Condor Legion, who had used the Spanish Civil War as a training ground, were developing what would become the Blitzkrieg tactics of the Second World War, and the Irish units, for example, were subjected to new and harrowing tactics. German Stucke dive bombers, which swooped down on the battlefield, were fitted with sirens so they wailed on their descent. This was a very effective strategy in that it demoralised the troops. Indeed, at the Ebro, one of the first Irish people to be killed in a Stucke attack lost his life. He was William Keenan from Bangor County Down who had emigrated to Canada and arrived in Spain with Canadian units in late 1937. As had been common on both sides of the Spanish Civil War, the bravery of individual soldiers was undermined by poor leadership. However, at the Ebro, the anti-fascist generals' lack of innovation proved particularly costly. Once the fascists could bring their superior air power and their numbers to bear, the advance began to slow down and eventually ground to a halt. Less than a week into the attack on August the 1st, the anti-fascist General Modesto gave an order to switch onto the defensive and hold the ground they had taken, a somewhat bizarre decision given this ground had no strategic value and was hard to resupply given all logistical support had to cross the river Ebro, which was being relentlessly bombed. The sensible decision in hindsight would have been to retreat back across the river if Modesto felt he could no longer advance. 
Instead, the anti-fascist command fought bitterly for every inch of territory and for nearly three months the battle continued. While they did stubbornly hang on, it wasn't clear what the point was other than to show the world they could resist. However, ironically, day by day, their limited war materials diminished while their casualties mounted. The Irish killed at the Ebro included the Belfast native Jim Strainey, the Dubliners Lee McGregor and Jack Nalty and the Limerick man Morris Emmett Ryan. Others suffered serious injuries. The Dublin communist Eugene Downing had been shot in the leg in the opening days of the battle, a wound that turned gangrenous and was later amputated. Michael O'Reardon, who had arrived from Cork, was hit with shrapnel and invalided back to Barcelona. However, unbeknownst to them, while they were risking everything on the Ebro, the war for the Irish, at least, was actually nearing an end. While many had thought in coming to Spain they would either win or die trying, decisions being taken in the corridors of power decided the fate of the Irish volunteers and indeed all those who had travelled to Spain to fight fascism. As the Ebro raged on, the wider political situation in Europe, which was so important, had continued to escalate at the same time. In September 1938, Hitler demanded Czechoslovakia cede a huge swathe of territory to Nazi Germany. The Czechs naturally refused. However, even though it seemed a major war was about to break out in Central Europe, France and the United Kingdom intervened. Rather than face down the Nazi threat, they instead pursued a policy that has since become known as appeasement. They forced the Czechs to give in to Hitler's demands and war was avoided. The implications had an enormous impact in Spain. Based on their reaction to the Czech crisis, it was obvious the French and British would not take the decisive action needed to alter the course of the Spanish Civil War. To make matters worse, while the soldiers did their best on the Ebro, the anti-fascist politicians had played their hand poorly in the midst of this crisis. Desperate to win international support, Juan Negrín, the Spanish Prime Minister, unilaterally announced he was sending home the international brigades. Ultimately, even though there had long been calls in France and Britain to limit international involvement, Negrin's gesture was a futile and pointless effort to win sympathy from world leaders. Whatever impact it might have made, it was completely drowned out by the wider Czech crisis. While the international brigades were at this point less than 5% of the overall army, his move also revealed a pretty cavalier attitude to their lives. They were essentially being used as a bargaining chip in international diplomacy while they were risking everything at the Battle of the Ebro. In the days following this announcement, the international brigades were withdrawn from the Ebro front and brought back to Barcelona. This was an odd anticlimactic end to their involvement. The war was not over, but they were being sent home. On October the 28th, 1938, the remaining 10,000 international brigaders marched through the centre of Barcelona in a farewell parade. The communist leader Dolores Ibraru, known as La Passionaria, addressed them in what would go down as one of the most famous speeches from the Spanish Civil War when she said, You can go proudly. You are history. You are legend. You are the heroic example of democracy's solidarity and universality. We shall not forget you. And when the olive tree of peace puts forth its leaves again, mingled with the laurels of the Spanish Republic's victory, come back. This was an incredibly emotional event. As 300,000 people lined Barcelona's streets, many of the battle-hardened veterans were in tears. The war for the brigades was over. While the Irish could return home to face a very hostile atmosphere, many, however, had nowhere to go. 
For example, the German and Italian anti-fascists faced execution if they tried to return home. So they were given honorary Spanish citizenship and they would continue fighting. However, the remarkable gesture that had seen working class people from across the world rally to the cause of Spanish anti-fascism and democracy was at an end. In the following weeks, the Irish now prepared to leave a country they had given everything for. There was no question they had acquitted themselves well, but it came at a horrendous price and when they returned home, they would certainly not be greeted as war heroes. Far from it. It was not the police necessarily they feared they could handle any interrogation given what they had been through. The bigger problem was the way the Catholic Church had accused them of supporting what was often called an anti-God side. This guaranteed for some, even their friends and neighbours would treat them with suspicion and hostility. Ireland, for those who came home, would be an unwelcoming place, and unsurprisingly, some chose to emigrate, perhaps attracted by the anonymity offered by other countries. To make matters even worse for those who were leaving, they were departing in the worst possible circumstances. While Frank Ryan and Bob Doyle remained in prison, with Ryan sentenced to death, it was also clear by the time they left, the anti-fascists were going to lose the war. A few weeks after they had been withdrawn, the last anti-fascist units pulled back across the Ebro River in mid-November. It had not just been a failed attack, however. They had been absolutely routed and this left the anti-fascist zone of Catalonia and Barcelona largely defenceless. They were running low on pretty much all supplies from food to ammunition. Events began to move rapidly. Franco realised the importance of striking at the anti-fascists while they were reeling and he began his assault on Catalonia on December the 23rd. While the idea of the fascists taking Barcelona had been unimaginable when Pather O'Donnell visited the city in 1936, by late 1938 the people had lost the will and the ability to fight. Any major resistance was clearly futile. Instead, a mass exodus east for the French border began while the army mounted a fighting retreat to protect the huge numbers of refugees trying to escape. Franco's army marched into the Catalan capital on January the 26th, 1939 and swept on to the French border, taking the last border crossings in February. The war was nearing an end, but it was not quite yet over and the final chapter had a forgotten but decisive Irish intervention. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. After the fall of Barcelona, about one quarter of Spain, a large stretch of territory between Madrid and Valencia remained in anti-fascist control. The only way this could be saved was major international intervention. However, it was clear by now that France and the United Kingdom had no intention of risking being dragged into a war. The last hope was the United States of America. President Roosevelt had long seen fascism as a threat to American interests and after the Battle of the Ebro he seemed to be in favour of lifting the arms embargo and selling weapons 
to the anti-fascists. While it probably would have been too little too late, Franco, however, was not without his allies in the USA, most notably Aileen O'Brien. She would, in fact, have a greater impact on the Spanish fascist cause than Ono Duffy's entire Irish brigade. As we saw in part two of Partisans, Aileen was an Irish-American far-right activist in Ireland leading up to the Spanish Civil War. While she had spent the early months of the war building support for the fascists in Ireland, she moved to Spain in the autumn of 1936. There she worked for Franco's propaganda department until she returned to the USA in 1938 for a speaking tour. What she found there was pretty alarming. American audiences were far less sympathetic than Catholic Ireland had been. By 1938 the US population was firmly behind the anti-fascist cause. Support for Franco was small. Around 20-30% of the overall population, 40% of Catholics supported him. Riots broke out on several occasions at events Aileen spoke at. However, Aileen focused her energies on a very powerful minority, the Catholic community. According to Louis Bolin, a member of Franco's inner circle, Aileen personally rang every bishop in the USA and was able to get them to mobilise their dioceses in support of Franco. She also teamed up with other major Irish-American figures, including Joseph Kennedy, the father of JFK, and also Father Charles Coughlin, an Irish-American priest with fascist sympathies who had built up a huge support base through a radio show in the 1930s. In late 1938 and early 1939, when it seemed like Roosevelt might open arms sales to the anti-fascist side, they successfully marshalled the Catholic voting bloc and were able to threaten those in favour of lifting the embargo that they would not be re-elected. Aileen herself went to Congress and lobbied several congressmen with the desired effect. In January 1939, Roosevelt withdrew his support for the idea. While it's doubtful whether a change in US policy could even have prolonged the war, this now unquestionably sealed the fate of Spanish anti-fascism. It was clearly only a question of how and when the war would come to an end. As is often common in the face of defeat, the anti-fascist unity, always fragile at the best of times, totally collapsed. The communists and their ally, the Prime Minister, Juan Negrin, advocated fighting on to the bitter end. However, most of those on the anti-fascist side recognised the war was lost and wanted it to end quickly. Their hand was strengthened by the fact that Negrin was long seen as a creature of the communists and their authoritarian policies had even alienated potential allies, not to mention their rivals, particularly the anarchist CNT, who still remained a powerful force within anti-fascist Spain. Ultimately, an alliance of politicians, army commanders and the anarchists deposed Negrin and the communists and paved the way for a surrender rather than prolong the fighting which could only result in further loss of life with the same result in the end. The Spanish Civil War finally came to an end on April the 1st, 1939 with a total and utter defeat for the anti-fascist cause. The retribution of General Franco was terrible. The fascists launched a murderous rampage that would last years. Hundreds of thousands were imprisoned in camps and jails. Precise numbers of how many were executed after the war is unclear, but estimates range from tens of thousands into the hundreds of thousands, with more recent studies supporting the higher figures. In the next and final episode of the series, we will look deeper into the legacy of the war, but for the rest of this show, I want to turn to the lives of our partisans after the war, which brings us on to one of the great mysteries of the Spanish Civil War. What happened to Frank Ryan? 
Frank Ryan, along with Bob Doyle, had been taken prisoner on the Aragon Front in 1938. This brought to an end their participation in the war. They were initially taken to the notorious San Pedro de Cardena concentration camp south of the city of Burgos. There, the anti-fascists suffered vicious daily beatings and interrogations, many of which were conducted by the German Gestapo. While in prison, Frank Ryan emerged as a leader among the prisoners, rallying them to resist in whatever way they could. He refused to give the fascist salute or sing fascist national anthems. One prisoner later recalled, Among many memorable and heroic people I have encountered, Frank Ryan stands out. He was with us in San Pedro for two months. What happened to him after that is something of a mystery. But I'm sure whatever his fate, he met it with courage and dignity, which even our fascist captors seem to recognise and respect. He was very impressive, intelligent, articulate, incorruptible, strong. He was an inspiring figure. In the summer of 1938, Ryan was separated from Bob Doyle when he was moved to another prison in Burgos. It was there he was court-martialed and sentenced to death. One of those who provided evidence for his court-martial was the Irish fascist Thomas Gunning, who had travelled to Spain with Owen Duffy and remained on after the other blue shirts went home. Indeed, Gunning would later write to the Irish priest Alexander McCabe in Salamanca saying that he would shoot Ryan himself given the opportunity. However, when the war ended on April 1st, 1939, Franco's regime began to release some international prisoners and it was hoped that Frank Ryan might be pardoned and released. Franco, however, refused. By 1940, worrying news began to circulate about the fate of Ryan. Bob Doyle, who had been released as part of a prisoner exchange in February 1939, had joined the British Merchant Navy and while in Gibraltar, a British enclave on the south coast of Spain, in the early years of the Second World War, he heard deeply distressing reports about what had happened to Frank Ryan. He immediately wrote to the Communist Party in Dublin, but Irish military intelligence managed to get a copy of his letter, which survives today in the file they kept on Frank Ryan. It read, Dear friend, I just don't know how to express my deepest sorrow, and at the same time my bitter hatred on just learning the news of Frank Ryan. I believe myself he was shot long before October. I wrote to him several times from here without getting any response, as recently as last month. Doyle went on to blame the Irish government, who he had warned when he returned home. We know quite well who was responsible for this. They had our warning on our return from Spain, in which I stated Frank Ryan was not safe. Of course, the war gave his enemies at home and abroad every opportunity. And such a brilliant and sincere anti-fascist as Frank Ryan would prove a danger to their own cause. And no doubt he would have awakened a spirit in the Irish people. His last remark to me was, I would prefer to die in Ireland as in Spain. His heart was there. We who have known Frank so well and have shown the greatest respect for him as our leader and who rightfully deserve that respect from his fellow comrades will keep this in our minds. And in the words of Frank, Quoted once, seeing a Franco poster in the camp with the workers' emblem trodden underfoot, we shall rise again. Salute, Robert Doyle. Frank Ryan, however, was not dead. However, Bob Doyle may have been hearing some rumours based on a grain of truth because in that summer of 1940, Ryan's life had taken a very strange turn. Helmut Klisman, a member of the German intelligence service, the Abwehr, was married to a friend of Frank Ryan's and Klisman had raised his case with his superiors in Nazi Germany. This set in train a really bizarre series of events. With the full knowledge of the Irish ambassador in Spain, Leopold Kearney, 
Frank Ryan was released by the Franco regime into the custody of Nazi intelligence officers. He was first taken to Paris and then on to Berlin. However, he wasn't a prisoner of the Nazis. In Germany, he met with the leading IRA figure, Sean Russell, who had arrived in Berlin hoping to secure support for an IRA campaign against Britain. The story at this point becomes mired in supposition and conjecture. What we do know is that Ryan and Russell met in early August 1940 and within days the Germans put the two men on a submarine with a plan to drop them back to Ireland. However, en route, Russell became seriously ill and died and the submarine returned to Nazi Germany where Frank Ryan remained for several years. There's never been a satisfactory answer which explains what he was doing there. There's no question that Frank Ryan was a committed anti-fascist. He had proven this time and again. In the past, some have argued he, like Russell, was trying to get Nazi support for a campaign against the British. However, this is contradicted in a letter that Ryan wrote to Leopold Kearney, the Irish ambassador in Spain, in which he hints that he may have had very different reasons for being in Germany. It's best to let Frank Ryan's words speak for themselves. In this letter, written in 1942, Ryan is addressing the issue of World War II and how the Irish people should react to it. Some context here is that the Irish government of Eamon de Valera had decided on a policy of neutrality in the war. In a time of national crisis like this, there must be a unified command. The country comes before party. So in his neutrality policy, which is the only sane policy under the circumstances, de Valera should get 100% support. Those of us who disagree with the social and economic programme of de Valera and those who are suspicious of his political programme should organise and fit ourselves to be eventually that government which alone will succeed his. However, as he continues, he alludes to what he might have been doing in Germany. I have been careful while here to maintain the position of an independent individual and not to work for any particular organisation. It is pretty easy for me to maintain that position. Official policy here is delighted with Dev's attitude. However, the most salient point is when Ryan says, I'd hate to be stuck here. I want to get back so that I can play a part and I really believe I could do a little in unifying my friends to support Dev in his foreign policy while reserving our rights to differ on other matters. This does give us some answers. It's very clear that contrary to some allegations, Frank Ryan was not working for the Nazis or involved in plans to either undermine the Irish government or gain support for an IRA campaign against the British. Indeed, Ryan may well have been in some way, shape or form an unofficial Irish agent in Berlin working through Leopold Kearney, the Irish ambassador in Spain. The full truth of the matter we'll probably never know. There's too much of the story missing. Frank Ryan ultimately died a lonely, isolated death in a sanatorium near Dresden in 1944, a tragic and strange end to one of the leading Irish anti-fascists of his generation. In 1979, his body was exhumed and brought back to Ireland and reinterred in Glasnevin Cemetery in Dublin. While Frank Ryan would become the most famous Irish person to fight in the Spanish Civil War, not least due to the mystery of his final years, to conclude, I want to look at how our other partisans fared in later years. After returning from Spain, the Dubliner Bob Doyle moved to England and served in the Merchant Navy in the Second World War. He joined the Communist Party and was active in the trade union movement in the post-war period, remaining involved in left-wing politics for his entire life. 
He published a book of his experiences in Spain called Brigadista in 2006. He died in 2009 at the age of 93, the last surviving member of the Irish International Brigades. Pather O'Donnell, who had been among the most influential of the Irish anti-fascists and an eyewitness to the outbreak of the Spanish Civil War, remained active in Irish politics throughout his life, although never to the same degree as he had been up to the 1930s. A committed Republican socialist, he was a prominent figure in many political campaigns after World War II, from nuclear disarmament to leading Irish opposition to the Vietnam War. He also became an accomplished writer, publishing several books, including an account of his experiences in Spain called Salud, which was published in 1937. He died in May 1986 at the age of 93. Owen O'Duffy never resurrected his political career after the Spanish Civil War, as he had hoped he might. Irish military intelligence took an active interest in his activities, particularly after the beginning of the Second World War. They feared that if the Germans invaded Ireland, he would be installed as a figurehead. They meticulously gathered evidence about his life, from the amounts of money he was spending on alcohol to who he met and what they discussed. The picture they built up was that of a committed fascist. However, military intelligence viewed him as a very limited threat, not least because he was a chronic alcoholic. He died in 1944 at the age of 54. Alexander McCabe, the priest and rector of the Irish College in Salamanca, who I have quoted on numerous occasions throughout the series, had a lonely and sad end to his life. He lived in Francoist Spain until 1950 when he returned to Ireland. He too had developed a drinking problem, which was exacerbated by the loneliness of rural Ireland. This resulted in what were minor scandals when he on occasion would demand the fascist salute from parishioners and was moved from parish to parish in the northwest by the Catholic hierarchy. He died in 1988 at the age of 88. Aileen O'Brien enjoyed the most successful post-war life of all the people covered in this series. At the end of the Spanish Civil War, she would move with her mother and siblings to Madrid in Spain. Irish military intelligence continued to take an interest in the family and intercepted letters they were writing back to Ireland. While Aileen's letters remain sealed to the present day, those of her mother Margaret reveal how Aileen, having always been interested in propaganda work, was trying to get into the Spanish film industry as a producer. While the Second World War made this very difficult, she did write a film that was produced a comedy called Castillo de Naipes, meaning House of Cards, in 1943. In Madrid, the O'Briens very much lived the lives of victors. The letters of her mother reveal how she had no sympathy for the poor in the devastated country, blaming them for their own misfortune. Indeed, she admired post-Civil War Spanish fascism, which she called a Catholic mentality undeformed by the stupidities of humanitarianism. At the end of the war, Aileen would marry the German aristocrat Felix von Wittinghoff Schell and moved to Germany, living at Kalbeck Castle under the married name Aileen von Wittinghoff Schell. Her political involvement declined in the post-war years. She died in the year 2000 at the age of 87. In the next episode, we will conclude this series, Partisans, with a show on its aftermath. For this, I will be interviewing Nick Lloyd. Nick is an expert on the war who lives in Barcelona, and runs outstanding tours on the Spanish Civil War, so I'm really looking forward to getting his thoughts on this. Finally, don't forget, there's still memorabilia available at irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop. That's irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop. Until next time, Sloan.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.